In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com to get 5% off your first purchase with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for 5% off your first purchase. Hi, everyone. This is Dev Raga. And what we're going to do over the next couple of weeks is do some reruns of the top episodes of 2023. And the top episodes of 2023 are basically when I did a series called Money in Your 20s, Money in Your 30s, Money in Your 40s and Beyond. And those episodes really resonated with listeners. So we're going to replay those over the next few weeks for you to have a listen to. If you haven't listened to them, I think it's a great chance for you to listen to it, particularly coming up to the end of the year and also in 2024. Now, just the other thing I wanted to let you know is in 2024, we're going to be rebranding this channel. We're going to go back to Devraga Personal Finance, the original name of the podcast. For those of you that have been following me since 2018 when I started, that was the original name. And then we rebranded to My Millennium Money Medical. And of course, We've now also rebranded since then to My Millennium Money Professional because the money concepts are exactly the same. No matter what profession you are, no matter what your income levels are, the concepts and the principles remain the same. And I'm a great advocate of talking about those concepts and principles. And as I've always said, that you can come back and listen to these episodes 50 years from now and the concepts and principles are going to be the same, even though I may or may not exist. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy the next few weeks of the reruns of Money in Your 20s, 30s and 40s. And of course, as always, please stay safe. Hi, everyone, and welcome to My Millennium Money Medical. My name's Dev Raga, and I'm your host. And in this episode, we will continue on with a live stage series and discuss some of the core things you may wish to do in your 30s when it comes to money. Remember, this is just a guide and something which has worked relatively well for me. It may not work for you, but what's important is perhaps you want to take one or two of these concepts and try and master them in your 30s. Let's get started. If you want me to discuss a specific topic or if you have a specific question, contact me via Twitter or via Facebook. And for those of you that are new to the channel, remember the three main aims, education, empowerment and entertainment. In the previous episode, we discussed the six things you need to master in your 20s. This episode builds on that. Now for the 30s. Number one, personal insurance and investing in yourself. Now, what do I mean by investing in yourself? We covered the getting education side of things in my previous episode, but I think in your 30s, you need to work on your attitude towards your health. You cannot smash your body with poor diet and no exercise and no lifestyle habits and then expect to make it all up in your 40s and 50s. It doesn't work like that. I highly recommend having even a basic exercise plan. Now, if you need a motivator or a personal trainer, that's fine. It's well worth the spend, in my opinion. Now, I didn't think exercise much in my 20s. I didn't think it was really that relevant. But very quickly, I learned the risks faced by patients in their 30s when things like cardiovascular health, vascular health, diabetes, cholesterol, all start to lay their foundations in your 30s. You may wish to stop them. It may not be possible for some people with a strong family history to stop them completely. 
but you may wish to delay it as much as possible. The RACGP guidelines suggest 2.5 to 5 hours of moderate physical activity per week, and this can be distributed across the week or concentrated on any period of days. It's up to you, and you can work it out on your based on your lifestyle, work habits, and daily activities. If you want to really do vigorous exercise, they suggest 75 to 150 minutes. The basic way I explain this to patients is, when you exercise, you need to sweat. So if walking is not a leisurely stroll, it's vigorous walking or running. You need to be a little bit short of breath. Maybe mild to moderate asthma attack is a good example of that. It gives you an impression, a picture in your head about what level of intensity you should be striving for. Now, if you can't do 2.5 hours per week, that's fine. Start with 30 minutes per week and build on that. That's what I did. Now I routinely try and do about three to five hours of exercise per week. I don't do any weights. I mainly do aerobic exercise, running, walking, etc. It really does help with your joints, your muscles, your mental health, your physical health, and I mainly do it outdoors, even if it's freezing, because we are social creatures and being outside, for me, is generally a good thing. At the risk of sounding lame and being a doctor, etc., here's why investing in your health is really important. For the vast majority of listeners out there, you're not financially independent yet. That is your focus. That is my focus. You're likely the major breadwinner in your family, and you're relying on your labour and your skill set to work to make income to live a life and invest it for you and your family over the long term. This means your biggest asset during your wealth accumulation phase is not your home, is not your car, is not your possessions or your index funds. It's you. Therefore, it makes complete sense to focus on you while at the same time focusing on your money and your finances. Now, I would probably add, if you can afford it, get private health insurance as part of looking after yourself. Time and time again, I'm constantly haggling for beds with public hospitals, trying to get people admitted for procedures. And the number one question in 2022, I ask every patient after taking a history, examining them and establishing a diagnosis is, do you have private health insurance? And is it good cover for hospitals? It just opens doors up significantly. Yes, I hear people always trying to skimp on these things, but in my world, it's not optional. It's a necessity because I see the problems every day with bed access in public hospitals. Now, just to be clear, if you don't have private health insurance, you won't get inferior care. But you may get an inferior outcome from non-life-threatening problems. If it's life-threatening, it's far easier to go to the public hospitals who are well-resourced to handle emergencies. But if you have a non-urgent issue, including a fracture, which is not limb or life-threatening, let me assure you, a fracture is not an emergency, even in an emergency department, especially when you have several patients with worse fractures, worse heart attacks, or even worse strokes. Let's use an example to highlight this principle. Amy is a 55-year-old female who is riding her bike with her son, Rob, who is 25 years old. Unfortunately, due to wet weather, they lost control of their bikes and both fell down. They attend the local emergency department with painful right wrists with a deformity. Distal to the wrist is also a deep laceration. There is concerns about neurovascular injury as both describe mild numbness associated with their spring finger. Now, to make things consistent, I purposely made the case similar. And in fact, based on a true story, when I consulted patients who presented in a similar circumstance, I posted about this on the public forums, which generated a lot of discussion. 
Amy is a full gold private insurance member. Unfortunately, Rob, her son, was taken off to the health insurance policy after he started working full-time. So he's currently working as a tradesperson and he doesn't have private health insurance. It is determined both patients need referrals to a plastic surgeon to handle the fracture and also the deep laceration with possibility of nerve injury. Amy is referred privately and is operated on that evening in a private hospital. Rob does not have private health insurance. He's referred within the public system and the plastic surgeon has assessed him. He's been placed on the operating list for that evening. Unfortunately, due to multiple operations, Rob is told at 6pm they won't be able to operate on him until three days later, provided there is no further emergencies. They stabilise the fracture with a cast and dress the wound and he's given antibiotics and a tetanus booster. Rob is sent home as they need the beds. Rob presents three days later and waits his turn on the operating table. This time, thankfully, he's operated on and is discharged the following day without patient follow-up. Notice the following. Amy and Rob both had the same injuries and required the same treatment. Amy and Rob both get the treatment they need. Amy got it earlier and Rob got it later. So what's the big deal? Here's why. Rob may have to use a sick leave if he's eligible because it's cost him three days of earning period. If he's not eligible for sick leave, he will lose income as he can't go back to work for those days. You can't work as a tradesperson with a cast on. It may even be that this has happened, Rob chooses to ignore to come back three days later and goes back to work earlier, ignores the advice of the plastic surgeon and goes to work while waiting for surgery, further injuring his tendons and nerves and making his fracture worse. Surprisingly, this is not uncommon. This happens a lot. It's not unusual for patients to tell me they can't afford to take sick leave and have no personal insurance and have no private health insurance, so they have to work to put food on the table. In fact, this happened just a few weeks ago, and in that case, they signed a waiver to explain they have understood everything and I discharged them against my medical advice. Now, why is all this very important? Not returning to work promptly means lack of income. Lack of income means cost of living pressures, more mental stress, poor recovery, and potentially a lifetime of complications for Rob. So the statement stands, same care and potentially inferior outcome, which can have lasting implications on their health, which has lasting implications for their recovery and income generating capacity. Now I've done an episode on private health insurance way back in episode 59, if interested. Now, personal insurance. I have healthcare workers and non-healthcare workers listening in on this episode. Life happens and happens. Healthcare workers and non-healthcare workers get sick as well. We die as well and we get permanently disabled. We're not immune to these sorts of life events. So despite having a good emergency fund, you need a personal safety net for these situations. The number of patients I see on a daily basis who don't have personal insurance, such as income protection insurance, is staggering. Now, there are four main types of personal insurance you need to know about. Let's go through them individually. Life insurance, it really should be called death and disability insurance because it gets paid out on your death. Total and permanent disability cover, income protection, and trauma and critical illness insurance. Now, I won't go into these insurances in significant depth because I've done numerous episodes about this namely in episode 219, in a Q&A session, episode 5, 
although a bit outdated now, and episode 66, where I discuss some changes in IP insurance. So let's discuss briefly what these insurances are. Number one, life insurance. This is when you die and your beneficiary, usually a family member, gets paid out. It's important to note you may have default life insurance coverage through your superannuation, so you need to go and check on this. And it's also if you get diagnosed with a terminal illness, many people don't actually know this, but if you have a terminal illness, you can get paid out life cover. If you already have life insurance, make sure your beneficiaries are listed and updated. It has to be legally binding. Here are the top things to know about life insurance. How much cover do you need? There are some rough estimates out there like 10 or 12 times your annual cover. Now, I think these are just guides. For this, you need to consider your life stage, your liabilities, your financial dependence or not. The general rule of thumb is if you have people relying on your income, you need life insurance. Now, I would recommend speaking to an insurance advisor about this so they can tailor something specifically for you. I would also recommend always over-insure rather than under-insure. The cost of insurance and payout figure, and when they get their money, note the claims process for life insurance within super versus their life insurance outside of super is slightly different. And super may have group policies, whilst most insurances outside of super is tailored and individualized to you. Now, this is probably the most basic cover you should need and think about in the unlikely event you die. You do not want to leave your family a bit of a financial disaster with debts and bills to pay without covering yourself with life insurance. Think about it like a gift for your family. The second type of insurance is total and permanent disability cover. This is a lump sum payment if you permanently or totally become disabled such that you can't work. It's designed to help you pay for medical expenses, living expenses, rehab costs, and perhaps even pay off some of your debts. What defines a permanent and total disability varies between insurers, so it's not always the same. So you need to check up on that. So ask for a definition and read the PDS, which is really important. ASIC has an insurance claims and comparisons tool, which I think you can use, and they inform how each insurer handles claims, which I found quite useful. Number three is income protection. This is when you become unwell and unable to work for a period of time. You will need a monthly income to sustain yourself and your family and service all of your expenses and debts. There are rules on how much you can get paid. Usually it's 75% of income and it depends on your income, how much you earn and what it's been for the past 12 months to three years, depending on the insurer. This is where an advisor can tell you the policy requirements and claim requirements because it's quite different between insurers. Usually, there is a waiting period prior to claims, which can be anywhere between 30 days to 90 days or longer. And of course, the longer the waiting period is, the more emergency funds you'll need to chew through, but it also means the premiums for income protection are lower. You need to check your PDS about unable to work. What does it actually mean? Because this varies from insurer to insurer. Agreed value versus indemnity policies. Now, this is a non-issue largely because agreed value policies are no longer available for new customers. It's only indemnity value policies. And I've talked about this in previous episodes as well. That's income protection. It's going to be the most expensive part of your whole personal insurance cover. So what does all this mean in terms of under agreed value policy? Now, previously under agreed value policy, you're able to nominate an agreed value and of which 75% may be paid out as insurance claim. And this protects you against future income drops. You can't get these policies anymore. 
In indemnity value policy, this is when your claim depends on your income at the time of claim. So if your future income drops, that gets taken into account as well. Now, the length of cover. Usually for income protection, the length of cover drops out at age 65. The longer you need the cover, the more you pay. And over the past two years, lots of changes have occurred in this space. So it's worthwhile knowing the changes such as the five-year review of policy, indemnity cover, percentage cover up to 90% for the first six months, for example, and then drops out to about a 60%. What the insurer will expect from you to maintain the same income protection claims. You will need regular doctor's visits. And I remember managing patients on these sorts of claims it's a lot of work for the doctor. And of course, the doctor will charge you for it because it's not Medicare rebatable. But I think you can claim those charges back from the insurance company. And lastly, we have trauma and critical illness insurance. This is likely the most claimed insurance policy as life happens. In this insurance, you don't need to die. You don't need to have a total or permanent disability. You just need to have a life-changing diagnosis. You can completely recover from that, and that's completely fine. Insurance have a list of diagnoses such as cancer, heart attack, or stroke, and they have to be pretty major diagnoses, and you will get a payout. Usually, once you claim, you can have the policy reinstated for other conditions at a cost or higher premiums, depending on your insurer. The payout received may be used for living expenses and medical bills or rehab costs. The key here is you don't need to diagnosis to be life-limiting or permanently disabling. So this cover is probably one of the most useful, in my opinion, in addition to life insurance and income protection insurance. Now, there are a few things to ensure you understand when it comes to personal insurance. Number one is you've got to think about own occupation versus any occupation. I think having own occupation is always better. Number two is payout is to the beneficiaries mostly, but in super, it changes slightly. Number three is stepped versus level premiums. And number four is at-risk activities. If you do them and don't disclose it, it may not be covered. At-risk activities like skiing, danger sports, and anything out of the ordinary, like handling snakes, for example. And number five is non-income producing partner. Do they cover them? The answer is yes. This is because if they get sick, then it'll impact your ability to work and earn an income, unless you have systems or carers in place already. It's a common thing people forget to do. So you may want to get a non-income producing partner some insurance as well. Is personal insurance expensive? Yes, personal insurance is expensive. But I feel it's even more expensive not to have this because you're only one life-changing event away from complete financial ruin from which you may never be able to recover ever again. And generally speaking, if you wanted all of these policies, it can be in the thousands and thousands of dollars per year. So it's worth shopping around. And remember, insurance is when you're transferring your risk to the insurer for a premium. That is the cost to you. So, looking after yourself health-wise and looking after your personal insurance is really important in your 30s. The second thing is having a written financial and investment plan. In your 30s, you really want to crank up your investments as much as possible because in your 40s and 50s, you're likely going to have larger expenses with kids and school and maybe even some holidays and sometimes even lifestyle expenses may creep up. And this is when you need to have a written financial and investment plan in your 30s so that in your 40s and 50s, you're sort of on autopilot. Now, I've discussed this topic in detail in episode 90. If you're interested in having a listen, way back in my personal life, 
previous life, beg your pardon, as Devraga Personal Finance. Now, here are the top steps to do it effectively. In your 20s, you've set up systems and stress-tested them, and hopefully they're robust. It's unlikely that you come across a large amount of money in your 20s. In your 30s, you're hopefully generally healthy and really keen to leverage and exploit your skill set to the max. The 30s is a long time, and in that 10 or 11 years, some people may choose to reach their peak earnings, or at least be well into their way towards it. My plan in my 30s is to try and increase that savings rate. Now, I do mention that 20% after-tax pay yourself money, but I've learned the faster I save, the more I invest now, the less I need to work later on. So, here are some steps in terms of how to write your written financial and investment plan. And there are four steps. Step one is determine your risk tolerance and investing time horizon in your 30s. You have plenty of time to recover from down markets. You need to be in the stock market to some extent, maybe not 100% depending on your risk profile, but the majority of it time has to be in the stock market. You can be investing too much in um, annuities and bonds or fixed interest assets like high interest savings account or term deposits. Now, I'm talking about long-term investing here in your 30s, not talking about saving money for a home or a specific purpose. Step two is you've got to define your investing goals. People say don't have a figure in mind, but I think having a figure in mind is very useful. It gives you a barometer to assess your progress. I tend to calculate my future income I need and assume a 4% withdrawal rate on average to cover those expenses. The formula I use is productive assets needs to be annual income divided by 0.04. It's a very simple formula, which is just a rough guide. It's not too accurate, but it's also not too wrong. So if your annual income that you need is $100,000, then you will need $2.5 million in productive assets. Now, that's not your net worth. That's your productive asset. Now, note that your investing goals can be divided into short term, which is five to seven years in my opinion, medium term, which is eight to 20 years in my opinion, and long term, which is 20 plus years. And notice the definition I use is entirely different to traditional definitions, which state long-term investing is five to seven years. Personally, I don't buy that BS. The part of the investing plan is you need to work out how liquid you want your investments to be and how active or passive you want them to be. How involved do you really want to be? That's step two. Define your investing goals. Step three is what investments are you going to use to reach your objectives and goals? You need to work out, are you a passive investor or an active investor? Are you a property person or a stock market person or other assets person or a combination of all of the above? How does superannuation factor into investment? We all have to do it. And think about diversification, but know the risks of diversification. Refer to episode 203, where I discussed this specific concept. And having a strategy is useful because without it, you can easily lose sight of your goals. That's step three. Investments. What are you going to do and how are you going to reach them and what investments are you going to use? Step four is you've got to monitor those investments. How often do you want to do this? How aggressively do you want to do this? Rebalancing. How are you going to do this? Are you going to get your advisor to do this? Are you going to do it yourself? Are you going to discuss this step with them? Now, I don't monitor my investments too often. I check in occasionally. I find if you check too often, you're likely to do something silly with your investments. So it's better not to know. Sometimes less information is better and is more information. 
Now, part of monitoring your investments to ensure you engage is a radar so that your investments are not sort of going off straight. They're doing exactly what you want them to do. And steering your investments into the right direction. And that's what monitoring your investments has to do. And that's the four-step plan in terms of having a written financial and investment plan. Number one is determine your risk tolerance. Number two is define your investing goals. Number three is what are the investments you're going to use to reach those goals? And number four is monitoring. Now, the third thing you need to really focus on in your 30s, in my humble opinion, is you got to sort your will and estate planning and you got to future-proof it. I cannot stress this enough. Ideally, you should have a will and estate planning done in your 20s, but in your 30s and 40s is where a lot of life happens, good and bad, and it's incredibly important to have a protective safety net for your family and friends, extended relatives, whomever is significant in your life. Otherwise, it's a disaster. I've done a detailed episode before about will and estate planning in episode 34 and episode 14. First of all, all you need to know what happens if you die without a will. What actually happens? And this is Victoria-based, but it should be really similar across the nation. When you die without a will, it's called dying interstate. Spelling it out, I-N-T-E-S-T-A-T-E. In this case, after your funeral expenses and paying out all your outstanding debts, whatever is left over, assets-wise, goes through an algorithmic way of distribution. The administrator of the estate can be a family member or whoever is responsible has to apply to the Supreme Court for what's called a grant of letters and administration, essentially asking for authority to distribute the asset. This process is not cheap and usually the costs come out of the estate. And if the deceased doesn't have anyone, state trustees may be involved in this, but you need to check with your lawyer about this. This just makes the whole process a lot more complicated without a will and it's called the probate process. A probate is a legal way of recognising the will. The biggest problem here is any Tom, Dick and Harry technically can act as the administrator. And there are strict guidelines and rules about this. Dying interstate can also happen if your will is not legally valid. Commonly it happens if your will does not contain all of your assets. So beware those that think and hide or purposely not disclose assets in your name or in the will to try and protect assets away from people that you don't want them to have It's not possible and may jeopardise the entire will and the very people whom you're trying to protect. Now, who gets the assets if you die interstate? There is a algorithmic process such as spouses and de facto partners, although if not married, it's a bit more complicated and you need to register your relationship, etc. I actually don't know what this means and it may be an outdated approach. I need to check with your lawyer about this specifically if you're in a de facto relationship. But basically it goes to spouses, children, parents, siblings and grandparents, uncles and aunts, cousins, etc, etc. The biggest issue with dying without a will is that your assets may not go to the people who you care about the most. So the moral here is do not die interstate or have a will. It's a bit of a horror story for your family at the time of the greatest need. Again, consider it a gift. There are some things to consider when establishing a will or doing some estate planning. A will is your last wishes. It's a very important document. The last thing you want when you're dead is A, people fighting for your assets, and B, people who don't want to distribute assets getting those very same assets. Super is not formally considered part of the will. It's not recognised part of the will because a will is established based on beneficiaries. Note in super, it's the trust system. Therefore, it's not formally part of your estate. 
to protect your super, you need to organise a binding death benefit nomination. And you can refer to my recent super series that I did where I talked about this, I discussed this concept in detail. That is, you can't simply log in and have your beneficiary listed on that super. It has to be specifically stating binding death beneficiaries or something to that effect, which usually expires every two to three years and it needs reinstatement. Life insurance, etc., is part of the will, but again, you need to have a legally binding beneficiary for it to count. It would be weird to set up insurances and not have a legally binding beneficiary. Now, you need to think about the enduring power of attorney side of things and medical power of attorney side of things or equivalent as part of the will and estate planning. As a doctor, I cannot stress this enough. Trying to deal with family members when there are disputes and no one has any legal power to make medical decisions is an absolute nightmare. And as a healthcare worker, it's just disastrous. And lastly, advanced care plan. Have it written down or at least discuss it with significant persons in your life. Basically, what your wishes would be if the situation arose, you couldn't make medical decisions. What treatments you wish to have, what treatments you don't wish to have. And there are templates online if you want to Google them. Here's the deal. Patients always tell me, Doc, do what you can. It doesn't work out. Let me go. That's not an advanced care plan. Some of the things you need to think about when it comes to advanced care plans directives is funeral arrangements and your wishes. Do you want to be artificially ventilated in the intensive care unit? Do you want medications that artificially pump up your blood pressure and heart rate called inotropes or vasopressors? Do you want artificial feeding called TPN or PEG feeding or PEG feeding? Do you want CPR, cardiopulmonary resuscitation, which is the most common thing people talk about when they talk about advanced care planning, but it's not just that, it's other issues as well. Do you want high dependency unit? You've got to learn the difference between a high dependency unit, which is not the same as an intensive care unit. Do you want an operation if it saves your life, but compromises your quality of life? Are you an aged care admission candidate? Would you want that? Would you want to go to residential aged care facilities? What about blood products? What about intravenous fluids? What about intravenous medications like antibiotics? What about transfer to hospitals if you're at home or a care facility? Will it be something you want? Do you want to die in a hospital setting? Do you want to die in the home? Do you want to die in your residential aged care facility? Oh no, I don't want to die in a hospital. I would much rather die in a familiar environment during my final stages of life. And that is in my advanced care plan. Remember, if a fit and healthy 28-year-old wants to be let go in the event of a life-threatening emergency, I don't think it's actually valid. There have been cases where tattoos of DNR statuses have not worked out legally for the patient. The default position for a healthcare worker is to treat and not to stand by. Treatment is advanced these days and with it comes a problem. You can be artificially kept alive for longer periods of time than usual, which means it's all fun and games until you have a quality of life issue after you come out of all of this. So an advanced care plan is really important. Now, other things to consider about a will is an executor. You need to choose someone whom you trust. They execute the will which means their sole duty is to make sure the instructions of the will are followed with the help of your lawyer. And the second thing is guardianship. If you have people under the age of 18, they need legal guardians. Kids need legal guardians. People who are incapacitated or have disabilities may need legal guardians. It all comes down to capacity to make a decision. Is it impaired? Is it not? Ideally, an executor should not be the person who is the legal guardian as well. You may wish to review these will and estate plannings every three to five years if you think the circumstances change. 
The role and responsibility of a guardian or an executor is immense and should not be taken lightly. That's about it for wills and estate planning. Now, that's three things that I've considered in your 30s. We've got another three things to go to. Let's take a quick break. And when I come back, I have those three more things you may wish to consider in your 30s. Be right back. If you're after personal financial advice, don't get it from a podcast. If you would like help based on your own personal situation, head over to sortyourmoneyout.com. Click get help and we'd be happy to introduce you to one of our trusted advisors. Our panel of advisors, mortgage brokers and accountants work with clients all over Australia so they can connect with you wherever you are. That's sortyourmoneyout.com and click get help. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Welcome back. Let's crack on with more things you need to think about in your 30s when it comes to your finances and personal investing strategies. The fourth thing that you need to think about is avoid lifestyle creep. Now, I've done a detailed episode on lifestyle creep way back in 2019, and many of the concepts are the same. Refer to the episode 32 in my previous life as Devaraga Personal Finance. As you mature in your career, your income is likely to increase. And this also includes if you have a partner or a spouse. And as your income increases, there is this temptation to also increase your lifestyle choices, and it is this discretionary spending which is called lifestyle creep. Fundamentally, people start to think spending on discretionary things is a right and not a choice. This is a red flag. If you ever start to say to yourself, I deserve this because I work so hard, take some time off and rethink and ensure what you really think is what you really want. Here are some things which could account for lifestyle creep. Minor everyday things such as daily coffee or lunch outside, eating out every weekend, clothing and shoes, which is branded and relatively more expensive, beautician products or haircuts, which are really expensive, housekeeping, paying for a gardener, cleaner, etc. I'm glinting of this, so I have some element of lifestyle creep in my life as well. But the more risky things are even more dangerous. An expensive car or a car that you don't need. Extending yourself to buy a home you can't afford or rent a home you can't afford. This is very relevant in today's rising interest rate environments and rising rental squeeze environments. Notice the people have paid off their mortgage. You don't hear from them about interest rates, unsurprisingly, because they don't care. 
the third car or the boat or the bike. If you want to destroy your wealth, buy a boat. That's what I've been told. Now, who's at risk of lifestyle creep? In your 30s, you're maturing, and in your 40s, you're likely reaching your peak earning years. It is these decades which are real risks because healthcare workers, when it comes to lifestyle creep, is when we achieve our peak earning years in our 30s and in our 40s. But before I crap all over your lifestyle and lifestyle creep, I do have a philosophy of income of unit per time when it comes to some things like housekeeping and gardening, etc. Now, if you love housekeeping, if you love doing the dishes, if you love ironing, if you love cleaning the house, go ahead and do it. I hate cleaning the house. I hate gardening. We have a cleaner. We have a gardener. It completely makes sense for me to spend money on those activities because it's way cheaper than my own time. For example, if I had to spend an hour of gardening, and I'm not very good at it, my hourly rate is anywhere between $250 to $500 an hour. It doesn't make any financial sense for me to do this. I would much rather pay $50 to $100 an hour to get those tasks done from someone else. So in principle, yes, lifestyle creep is an issue, but you need to work out what it costs you otherwise, because opportunity costs needs to be factored in. Now, is there a strategy to keep lifestyle creep in check, but also enjoy the finer things in life? The answer is yes. Here's what I do. Despite my income increasing over the last five years exponentially, I've kept our expenses down as low as possible. The way I think about expenses is I don't eat more food than I ever did before. I don't drive around more than I ever did before. We don't buy expensive clothes. Our biggest expense is our children's education. But we do spend nicely on holidays. So what do I do is, as my income has risen, I do a set percentage of that increased income and set it aside for lifestyle creep. So it's accounted for and then save almost all of the rest and invest it. This gives me some structure, some order to ensure that lifestyle is not compromised, but I'm also not falling into that whole lifestyle creep phenomenon. And more importantly, I'm not stealing my future self to pay for things today, which I don't need as much. So avoid lifestyle creep. Number five is maximize your income. Don't just focus on your expenses. Now, in the FI movement or the financial independence movement, there's a lot of focus on expenses. The thing is, the expenses can only be minimized to zero. It's limited. There are some things you simply can't afford, like food, housing, and utilities. You can't minimize those to zero. You could consume less, but even then, it's a limited effort. What I propose in your 30s is you really have to think about your income. Income diversification is just as important as investment diversification. How do you actually do this? It's really tricky to have an overall approach to do this, but here are three things you need to focus on. This is something that I learned in medicine very early on. Availability. Make sure you're available. If your availability increases, this presents as a great opportunity to do more work or have some great business ideas. I get the whole, I need to live a thing. I get it. Everyone needs to live a life. That's perfectly fine. But doing some extra side jobs or extra shifts or seeing extra patients, it compounds over time. Let's use an example to highlight this principle. Amy is a hospital registrar who's currently training to become a rheumatologist. Amy has some medical registrar experience as this is part of her training. She's 32 years old and she has a partner who's a physiotherapist. She has no children yet and has no debt. 
Amy's current yearly salary is 110000 to 120000 per year. Her roster is 86 hours per fortnight and she's studying for her exams, but doesn't have much free time, but is committed to perhaps work an extra shift as a medical registrar to boost her income. And currently, the healthcare market is dynamite. She approaches a locum agency and also all of her previously uh, worked hospital networks to explain her skill set. Each shift as a medical registrar may bring in around $1,200 to $1,500, and if it's night shift, perhaps even more. She decides to do one shift per month. During this period of, say, three years, means her gross income has gone from $120,000 per year to $134,400 per year on average. Marginal propensity to save is 100%, so she has all the opportunity to invest this extra amount less taxes. Now, if her partner did the same, that would boost their income. Amy has recognised that being available to earn an income has meant more shifts coming her way, and now she has an upper hand on picking and choosing what she wants to do. Healthcare or people in it, the people who do extra work, Medical workforce want a good, reliable medical, nursing, allied health staff to fill their shift. My philosophy as an ex-director of a department is I would really have good staff at premium rates rather than a mediocre staff at lower rates. The damage the latter has done in my career is too much. So paying extra hourly rates is well worth the investment that I've done to get good quality staff to do work in the emergency department or medical ward or surgical ward, etc. Now, medical workforce, if you're listening, please approach it like this and don't staff hospitals or clinics purely based on cost alone because the ramifications and the complaints process and when things go wrong, in my experience, and that's very humble experience, is a lot more and it ends up costing the health service a lot more in the long run. The second thing about earning an income is affability. This is really important. No one likes an asshole. So no matter how good you are, uh, people don't like such people. The more affable you are, the more approachable you are, and the easier to talk to you are at work, the more opportunities this presents itself. Now, I've worked with some amazing doctors and nurses, but that's all they are. They have no personality, they have no affability, and therefore struggle to build that work connection. Don't confuse affability with being lazy. That's a completely different thing. Being focused, doing a great job and bringing people along the journey is really important. Almost all of my skills in the last five years hasn't been about learning new medical skills. It's about learning new non-medical and non-technical skills. Don't be an asshole is a good life skill to live by. And the last thing is ability. You need to have good skills in whichever profession you're especially in healthcare. During my career, I've come across some amazing doctors, technicians. Their skill set is next level. There is no way I'd be able to match their skills. They're just simply far too good. Everything from technical skills to communication, just being an all-rounder. Some of them have mentored me over the years, and I quickly realized that availability and affability will only get me so far in life. So being a good doctor doesn't have to be amazing, doesn't have to be the top 10 best doctor in the world, but just turning up to work on time, working effectively, working efficiently, and not creating a ruckus and just getting the job done is really important. For those that work with me, and I know some of you listen to this channel, so thank you very much, we know I don't muck around when I'm working. When I'm at work, I'm happy, joyful, affable, but at the end of the day, I'm there for one reason, 
and that is to see patients, to make sure they get the proper treatments they do and at the highest level that I can offer them. And if I can't offer them the highest level treatment, then I'll find someone else that can do it for me. I don't cut corners, I don't compromise. So sometimes it's all fun and games, but working hard, being a great clinician is immensely important. Now, this goes for all professions. I've talked to non-healthcare workers, accountants, lawyers, and more recently tradespersons who are just damn good at their job. One of the tradespersons who I used in the past told me most of his job is about communicating well, turning up to quotes on time and keeping the client informed, evolving with technology, texting clients rather than having to rely on phone tags and phone messages and being available for after hours for communications or having someone monitor the phones. His partner used to do it for him. All of these things are really important. Very quickly, he realised that people are happy to pay extra money for better communication, better non-technical skills, and in fact, he does charge a premium for that. So don't focus on price alone, focus on the service and the product, and of course, be the best at what you can be in. Now, here's a pro tip I think you might be useful. I used to think in medical school, it's important to be good at everything. Then I found out I'm not good at some things. For example, I suck at women's health. I'm just not good at it. I'm good at emergency, aged care, geriatrics, dementia, surgical, but women's health, I'm crap. I tried my best to master women's health and repeatedly wasn't anywhere close to some of the other clinicians who were just simply better than it, than I was. Everything from knowledge to personality, how to approach things, they were just simply superb and I couldn't match my skills with their skills. So rather than focus on the skills I didn't have, I decided to focus on the skills that I did have. I used the three A's to become as good as I can possibly be at the things that I'm good at. Then I realised I was able to exploit those for my betterment from a professional point of view, from a career point of view, from a financial point of view, and purely from a work perspective point of view. So if you suck at something, try and fix it. But if you can't fix it and you truly suck at it, acknowledge you suck at it and move on. Far more important to focus on things I think that you know on rather than trying to focus things that you want to be better at and you're simply just not good at. So again, focus on things you know and understand and you can master rather than things that you actually are not very good at. So remember the three A's. Opportunities will come, take them, leverage them, and don't be afraid to exploit them. By exploit, I mean take every opportunity. Don't procrastinate. That's especially important in your 30s. And lastly, number six, learn and buy productive assets in your 30s. I used to think investing was all about buying things and making sure their value goes up. It is and it isn't. If you just did that and the assets doesn't do anything for you during that period of growth, you're merely speculating. Make sure you understand the difference between investing, speculation, and gambling. Refer to episode 134 and 212 where I discuss this concepts. Let's use an example to highlight this principle. Amy is a medical receptionist and unfortunately her parents have passed away recently in a tragic accident. They've done a will and estate planning. She has an inheritance of her farm. The farm produces cops and they own the land and own the business. Amy doesn't have the skills to manage the farm. So what are her options? 
The farm is a productive assets. The land is owned by the family and the business is owned and operated by the family. So Amy has four options. She could sell the business but keep the land, sell the entire thing, or employ people to run the business and keep everything, or sell the land but keep the business. There are plenty of options for Amy because the farm is a productive asset. Now, suppose Amy didn't inherit the farm, but only inherited the family jewellery. Let's assume the jewellery is a combination of diamonds and gold. Amy doesn't really have much options there, because the jewellery doesn't do anything for her, doesn't do anything for society. She gets to look at it, she gets to touch it, it might make her feel good, but it doesn't do anything else. In this case, the family jewellery is a non-productive asset. So if you're listening and you have investments, you need to ask yourself, are your assets productive or non-productive? Historically, productive assets provide predictable returns over the long term. Non-productive assets are more volatile and you're relying on the greater fool theory to operate for you to become wealthy off them. Learning this concept in your 30s, that is to buy productive assets, is by far the most important thing, I think. So, that's about it for this episode, Money in Your 30s. It's a big episode and lots to talk about. We talked about six major things. I found in my life the 30s is where most of my financial life was in order and crystallized. And when I do enter my 40s, hopefully I will see the fruits of all of those decisions that I made in my 30s using these six principles. Thanks for listening and remember to leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you may be using or just leave a five-star rating on all of the platforms, that's even better, and please leave a positive review. The more ratings and reviews you leave means the more people get access to the podcast, so please keep them coming. This is Dev Raga from My Millennium Money Medical, and until next time, make sure you stay safe. We acknowledge the Awabakal people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits, and pay respects to their elders past, present, and emerging. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. This podcast is for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general financial advice only, which does not take into account your objectives, financial situation, or needs. Because of that, you should consider if the advice is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on the information. If you do choose to buy a financial product, read the product disclosure statement, target market determination, and obtain appropriate financial advice tailored to your needs. Simo Interactive Proprietary Limited, the publisher of the podcast, and Glenn James are authorized representatives of Money Sherpa Proprietary Limited, which holds financial services license 451289.